In response to fascist attacks and ethnic cleansing efforts directed against Palestinian people by ultra-right settlers backed by the Israeli government, the Palestinian people are uniting to fight back. On the home front, the Biden administration's economic program continues to draw attacks from right-wing media, the Republican Party, and key parts of the Democratic Party in the U.S. Senate. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's May 11th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent program by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, we want to start today with this horrendous, horrendous attack that Israel has launched on Gaza and before that on East Jerusalem. Yes, the Israeli government bombing Gaza once again. Two days ago, nine children were murdered. Others, their parents, their grandparents, their neighbors also murdered. The situation inside of Palestine, inside of historic Palestine, here we are on the eve of the Nakba when the ethnic cleansing of the right-wing Israeli forces took big parts of Palestine and declared them to be part of the Jewish homeland. On the eve of the Nakba, we have a resurgence of struggle by the Palestinian people. I mean, this has gone on for decades and decades and decades. The Palestinian people's consciousness that they will stay, that their steadfastness will retain their identity as a people and their claims to the land that has been stolen from them. This is why Palestine is still part of, and a central part of global politics. From the beginning, the settler colonial regime, and of course it was the British colonialists who declared that Palestine would be the homeland for Jewish people in the Balfour Declaration of 1917. That was part of British colonialism's intervention in the Middle East. This was at the tail end of World War I. There was the Sykes-Picot Treaty signed by the British and French colonialists along with the Tsar in Russia. They were talking about how they were going to redivide and colonize the former lands of the Ottoman Empire as it became clear that the Ottoman Empire would be defeated in World War I. The Sykes-Picot gave Egypt to Britain and Syria and Lebanon to France, and the Balfour Declaration was part of this colonial project in the Middle East. All of these efforts by colonialism and the settler regime that came afterwards to deprive the Palestinian people of their homeland, while it has succeeded in inflicting an ocean of human suffering, it has not succeeded in evicting the Palestinian people. The national consciousness of the Palestinian people is, in fact, the consciousness of resistance. And that's why Palestine continues to survive in spite of all of these attacks. Nicole, we were talking you know, a week ago that this Tuesday's show, today's show, would be focused on the Biden administration's economic program. This is going to be a point of intense class struggle, political struggle, social struggle in the United States. We were going to make that the focus today, but given the uprising or resistance of the Palestinian people in response to the really truly fascist-like aggression inflicted against Palestinians and against their neighborhoods and their homes, this has to be the center of today's show, even though we will also cover Biden's economic program. But let's get started, Nicole, with what is actually happening and why it's happening in historic Palestine. 
So essentially overnight, Israel hit Gaza with rockets killing at least 24 people, including at least nine children, and at least 106 other people were injured. You know, Israel's warplanes targeted civilian neighborhoods and a refugee camp, really just disgusting and really horrendous violence. And this bombing raid comes as Israelis have been forcing Palestinians out of their homes in East Jerusalem in two neighborhoods called Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. They're doing this using skunk water, a chemically enhanced type of sewage water. They're physically assaulting people. They're arresting people. And this raid also comes as Israeli military forces or the IDF has attacked the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the old city in Jerusalem during the month of Ramadan, making it even worse. But this has happened three mornings in a row with tear gas, rubber-coated steel rounds, steel bullets, and stun grenades. At least 520 Palestinians have now been wounded in East Jerusalem since Monday, including more than 200 who were wounded severely enough they had to be hospitalized, and five of whom are in critical condition. Hamas, the ruling entity in Gaza, demanded that these attacks stop at the Al-Aqsa Mosque or that Israel would face the consequences of you know, these horrendous and disgusting and racist attacks. Hamas then fired rockets from the Gaza Strip. And so as usual, Israel is saying, oh, we're just retaliating from when Hamas fired rockets at us. When, of course, their assaults on East Jerusalem are part of this ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem and all of historic Palestine. And Hamas's rocket attacks are part of the Palestinian resistance to this you know, overwhelming assault and attempted ethnic cleansing. On Monday morning, despite the assault and the rubber bullets and the tear gas, the Ramadan worshippers at Al-Aqsa held their own And some stayed in the mosque until the IDF assault stopped. They forced the assaulters out, this incredible act of resistance. And the current mobilization to defend Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood, and Silwan in in East Jerusalem has drawn tens of thousands of Palestinians, mostly young people, into action from areas that had not participated very much in the struggle in East Jerusalem before. So Israel is panicked, and they canceled the Settler Jerusalem Day March which is frequented by right-wing settler youth who attack Palestinians as they march through Jerusalem. You know, and they're, as I mentioned earlier, launching this all-out attack, killing at least two dozen people at this point. Esther, what really stands out is how the U.S. media, the duplicitous, lying, awful role of the U.S. media about this conflict. I'm looking at the Washington Post. Here's the headline. Neighborhood reignites Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it wasn't like, you know, people carrying out ethnic cleansing or fascism. It was like a neighborhood. A dispute over land in Jerusalem has people bracing for violence. No, this is this kind of passive, awful journalism, which is employed when the journalists or the Washington Post are talking about Israeli aggression. It's not a dispute over land. It's an effort by ethnic cleansing to take Palestinian people and drive them out of their homes to have the court sanctify the ethnic cleansing efforts. And when people try to resist by any means against violence employed against them, it means the neighborhood is, quote, bracing for violence. Really duplicitous. Yeah, it's the language is violent and it's beyond disturbing. It's the same way that the media cannot really deal with history and deal with the real consequences of settler colonialism in Palestine or here in the United States. I mean, that term is never even used. So the people in Palestine have been facing these expulsions since Israel was established in 1948. And it's what Palestinians commemorate every year as Nakba Day, when 800,000 Palestinians were removed from their homes and were displaced in the same way that Israel is attempting to displace these families in this neighborhood in East Jerusalem. So the whole establishment, the whole history of Israel is this removal of Palestinians and the complicit nature of Western media to ignore that history, to continue to skew the way the resistance is being portrayed, the same way that the resistance of people in Cuba, Venezuela, all over the world where the United States imperialism and Western imperialist nations have wrought these conditions. Yeah, I think another example of that duplicitous presentation that Esther was talking about is this position, you know, sometimes explicitly stated, sometimes implicitly stated, that this is an internal conflict. 
that the two sides in Palestine, Israel have been fighting each other for thousands of years, and there's simply nothing that can be done about it. This is just another inevitable flare up of this eternal millennia long conflict. That's completely false. That's not true at all. This is a modern conflict, and it's related to exactly what Esther was just talking about, settler colonialism. The Zionist movement emerged in Europe in the late 1800s. And then the state of Israel itself, however, was created in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And the colonies of the world were becoming free. There is this palpable trend, this unstoppable trend towards independence for the colonies. Massive movements were arising all over the place. In some areas, the colonial powers decided to fight them. In other parts of the world, the colonial powers decided to essentially manage a form of decolonization. And Israel was part of this strategy, part of this adaptation by the great imperialist powers of the world, because they wanted essentially a century in the Middle East. The leaders of the Zionist movement, the people who wanted to create the state of Israel, explicitly presented this to the European governments and especially to the British government, saying that this is a logical extension of the colonial project. First, because it allowed them to, you know, take land right from these people who have been determined to be inferior by the imperialist ruling classes. And then later on in a geostrategic way, that Israel would be the most reliable, loyal ally of the Western powers in a Middle East that was becoming independent and involved and included and encompassed many, many political movements that were left-wing, socialists, communists, anti-imperialists in their orientation. So that's how Israel came to be. It was a, a completely modern thing. And then if we look at this particular conflict over the status of the city of Jerusalem, I mean, when you know land of Palestine was partitioned the state of Israel was officially formed in 1948 under a United Nations approved partition plan. The city of Jerusalem, which is extremely politically in a religious sense as well important, would be an international city, meaning it would belong to neither side, not Palestine nor to Israel. And then in 1967, when Israel attacked nearly all of its neighbors in a surprise military assault, East Jerusalem was captured by the Israeli armed forces. And so the entire city of Jerusalem, not just West Jerusalem, came under Israeli rule. In 1980, Israel announced that they were annexing East Jerusalem. But that was not internationally recognized. In fact, it was viewed as a great crime against international legality because it was an example of the capture of territory by force, something that's completely against all norms of international relations. They conquered this area in war in 1967, and then they annexed it. They said, we're hanging on to this forever, completely rejected by the Palestinian people, the Arab countries and international institutions and governments all around the world. But what the Israeli government wants to do is cement their control of East Jerusalem through a settlement enterprise by essentially facilitating through economic incentives and primarily through military force, the settlement of a significant section of the Israeli Jewish population into East Jerusalem to establish a demographic foothold is how they look at it. And that involves displacing hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinian families from their ancestral homes. And in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, that's exactly what has been happening with special intensity in recent weeks and months. And it was an Israeli Supreme Court, an impending Israeli Supreme Court ruling on the status of several families in Sheikh Jarrah, whether or not they would be able to stay in their homes or would be kicked out by these racist, fascistic settlers that set off this latest round of resistance and brutal, brutal, brutal Israeli repression. Nicole, the article that I mentioned in the beginning, Neighborhood Reignites Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, on the 15th paragraph, you get to this paragraph. The Israeli settlers moving to evict the Palestinians and bulldoze the neighborhood to make room for 200 housing units are relying on a 1970 Israeli law that gives Jewish Israelis the right to reclaim East Jerusalem properties owned by Jewish people before the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. Again, it's the 15th paragraph. 
And as it turns out that as they came and they were, you know, using physical violence to take people out of their homes and use bulldozers to bulldoze those homes and then create homes for the settler regime, again, if you're relying on the American media, you won't know what is going on. It's exactly like Walter said. The U.S. is presenting this as like this age-old conflict between religious people, the way the Irish and Catholic struggle in Ireland, which is always a colonial struggle against Britain, is portrayed as a religious conflict between two different peoples with two different gods and two different sets of religious beliefs, rather than understanding this as the combination of colonial interests from Western imperialist countries and an expansionist settler bourgeoisie that tries to and is trying every day to capture the land of Arab and Palestinian people for its own enrichment. Right. It's yet another example of American media trying to pull the wool over the eyes of American people. They're relying on the fact that our school systems don't actually like, you know, teach anything about the rest of the world. But people in that area of the world know that this is Palestinian land. This is where Palestinians have lived for centuries. And, you know, the other component, of course, is that there are many Jewish people who have lived in Palestine alongside, you know, Arab and Jewish living together. But being a Jewish person is different than being a Zionist. And so, you know, this Zionist project that is attempting to kick people out of their homes to commit genocide and ethnically cleanse these regions, that is a totally different project. That's the settler colonial project. And that is what is absolutely disgusting. And the Israeli settler colonial project is what is currently terrified by the unity that we're seeing increasingly from Palestinians. There's, you know, for people who can't picture exactly how all of this looks, how Israel and Jerusalem, and Israel, of course, is actually just historic Palestine, but, you know, how this geography looks, it's a small area right on the coast next to Jordan, next to Lebanon, next to Syria. And there's four regions where there's primarily Palestinians who live there. So there's Gaza, which is the Gaza Strip. It's right on the ocean. That's been under a complete blockade since 2007. As Esther mentioned, the Gaza Strip you know, is essentially a refugee region. It's packed, packed, packed with people. Over 50% of the people who live in Gaza are impoverished. And I think it's something like 25 or 30% are in extreme poverty. I mean, this is not a place that you would, and not conditions you would opt to live in. You've got the West Bank, including right next to East Jerusalem, the occupied West Bank. You've also got East Jerusalem, as I mentioned. And then there's a number of cities that are in what's so-called Israel or historic Palestine that are dotted kind of around what Israel claims as its territory, like Haifa, Nazareth, Jaffa, right out of Tel Aviv. So there are these four regions, and these are the regions where Palestinians are and where they've been, you know, really starting to unify over the past few years. So a lot of these issues are happening in East Jerusalem. But, you know, even the people who are being evicted from Sheikh Jarrah, some of these people are refugees from where they used to live in Haifa. Some of these people are refugees where they used to live in Jaffa from these other Arab cities. So really, you know, these regions are connected. And this is an attempt by the Israel uh, Settler Colonial Project to split people up, to split solidarity but people are actually really starting to come together. And that is one of the reasons that the Israeli power is starting to really be scared. Yeah, Nicole, I think that's definitely correct. I mean, the strength of this particular wave of Palestinian resistance is something that's very formidable. And certainly that's not lost on the Israeli government and the leaders of the Israeli military. I mean, one other factor to keep in mind here is Israeli domestic politics, Israeli internal politics, which has been in a state of turmoil for years now, essentially deadlock where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is beloved by the extreme right wing, but also very polarizing, is unable to secure a majority after successive rounds of elections, four consecutive rounds of elections. And the opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu are also unable to form a government, primarily because of this you know, racist apartheid practice in Israeli politics, where the political parties in the Knesset that represent the Palestinian population of Israel 
are off limits. Nobody can form a coalition with them. You can't bring Palestinians into the government. So Netanyahu's opponents also are unable to form a government. So it's this deadlock. And Netanyahu is fighting for his political life and also for his personal freedom because he is in the middle of a serious, serious corruption trial that could land him in prison. So he's desperately trying to survive. So I think, you know, the maybe you could call them the sort of professional managers of the Israeli occupation of the Israeli government. They certainly see the danger here. But very narrowly, an escalated conflict, I think, is in Benjamin Netanyahu's political interests. And his statements, he's been making very tough, bellicose statements, militaristic statements these last couple of days. Just now, essentially, just a couple hours ago, he went to the Southern Command headquarters of the Israeli Armed Forces. And he said that, you know, the intensity of the attacks are going to continue. The Jerusalem Post is saying he announced that the intensity and rate of attacks will increase. So, Essentially, if Netanyahu, he may be calculating this. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but you can sort of see how it would work. He might be calculating that an escalated conflict could save him by preventing his opponents, who appear to be on the verge of making a deal, from going through with that government, because that government will necessarily include both parties of the far right. And in order to form a majority, they would have to make an alliance with one of the Palestinian parties in the Knesset. And Netanyahu may be calculating that in the atmosphere of intense, intense military conflict, that will become impossible for his opponents to sign up to, that they'll essentially back out of this coalition that's already essentially formed and as a consequence, save his political career. So, right, Walter, the desperation, the political desperation of Netanyahu and his willingness to ratchet up violence for these political ends just furthers the cause of how Israel has committed genocide, really, against the Palestinian people and has used this political infrastructure, this settler colonial infrastructure to almost erase the history of the existence, the lives of Palestinian people on the land. So when I talked earlier about Gaza and how so many of the people there are really just refugees from other parts of Palestine, you know, where they were forced out, just like the families in East Jerusalem, they're attempting to force them out right now. So I was reading a piece in Electronic Intifada to prepare for the show. And it talked about how for many people in Gaza, pieces of paper are their most treasured possessions. And there's a man named Adam al-Matun, and he's the custodian of documents showing how his grandfather, Salim, owned a 37-acre farm in Majdal. And that was on the southern coast of historic Palestine. And Majdal was seized by the newly formed Israeli army in November 1948. And then a mass expulsion of his residents occurred then. So the grandson has this deed of this 37-acre farm. And for him, it recognizes not only his family's legacy, but also it recognizes that it refutes what Israel tries to claim with this political and settler colonial infrastructure, that there was nothing there in Israel before Israel was set up, that the Palestinians weren't there, that there weren't cities, that there weren't towns, that there weren't families with farms. And it disrupts this narrative that the settler colonial state tries to erect and that they're continuing to try to erect by this violence and by just annihilating any evidence to the contrary of what they're trying to say. That's very important history, Esther. I want to recommend to people that they read up more on Palestine to understand the history. In particular, I want to recommend the book Palestine. Israel and the U.S. Empire by Richard Becker, who is both my brother and also my comrade. And this book can be purchased at pslweb.org, pslweb.org. It's an extremely important book because it helps the new reader, the reader who doesn't yet know enough about the history of Palestine and Israel and the relationship of colonialism. And it breaks it down and it goes over many of the key elements of the history in a way that I think new readers can understand. But one of the chapters in this book, 
chapter seven is entitled World War II, Anti-Semitism and Genocide. I want to read a couple sentences to you and talk about, again, the cynicism of colonialism and imperialism, which at some points pretends to care about a people or a religion or a minority in order to carry out its own goals. And we can see how the U.S. at certain times cared about Kurds in Iraq because it was targeting the Iraqi government or cared about Kosovo Albanians when it wanted to destroy the socialist government in Yugoslavia. We could go on and on. So many cases where the imperialists suddenly care about people. And now the imperialists that use Zionism as a colonial project starting in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration, and as Walter said, especially following World War II, feigning concern over the plight of Jewish people. When in fact, big parts of the U.S. ruling class, some of the biggest families, the Kennedys, the Bushes, Henry Ford, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, they were all sympathetic to the Nazis in the 1930s. They felt the Nazis, Hitler had destroyed the labor movement in Germany, that Nazi Germany was going to target the Soviet Union, the communist Bolshevik enemy. They were all about support for Nazism, in spite of the fact that Nazism also you know, presented the master race theory. Well, maybe that's what made them so happy with it. It seemed so familiar and was, in fact, based on America's racist policies at home. But real quick, I want to read a couple of sentences from this book. In November 1938, the Kristallnacht, that is the Nazi pogrom, killed more than 1,300 Jewish people in Germany and destroyed 7,000 businesses in one night. That was the night of breaking glass, Kristallnacht. It was followed by the start of the large-scale deportation of Jews to concentration camps. The following year, the Wagner-Rogers bill was submitted to the U.S. Congress It called for 20,000 German Jewish children to be admitted to the United States outside of the existing quota. The bill died, however, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt refused to support it. And of course, there was very little support in the U.S. Congress. The U.S. High Command was completely aware of the fact that rail lines were being established that would take Jewish people and Roma people and other East European people and gay and lesbian people to the concentration camps, to the death camps. But the U.S. High Command was so indifferent to people suffering in the Nazi death camps that they refused to bomb the rail lines. That could have easily been done. And again, these rail lines were filled with trains crammed with victims who were going to be executed, exterminated at the gas chambers and death camps uh, by Nazi Germany. And at the end of World War II, the Jewish population in Europe, many, perhaps 90%, wanted to emigrate, but they didn't want to go to Palestine. They were people who had grown up in European cities. They wanted to come to the United States in particular, and United States immigration policy shut that down. The United States immigration policy made sure that Jewish refugees in large mass numbers from Europe were funneled instead to Zionist refugee camps in historic Palestine rather than being admitted to the United States. So let's not fall for this trick presented by the colonialists and the imperialists that they somehow care about Jewish people or Palestinian people or Kosovo people or Kurdish people. They don't care about people, period. What they care about is extending their own global empires, and they use the plight of different peoples to present their colonial project as a noble cause. Anyway, we've covered this topic. We're going to cover it more in other segments of the socialist program as we continue in our programming. I want to turn, though, to our other major story, Esther, and that is, of course, Biden's economic program. I'm sure you've been noticing that the U.S. capitalist-owned media has been moaning about the fact that There's a labor shortage in the United States, even though there was massive unemployment, and that there is a shortage of low-wage workers. People are not coming back to work in the numbers that are needed by restaurants, you know, the hospitality industry, and it's considered a big crisis. And they're all 
the media is sort of highlighting the fact that people are getting too many benefits from the federal government, and that's a disincentive to come back to work. And I'm thinking two things right away. Well, maybe the wages at work for low-wage workers should be higher. Maybe it shouldn't be starvation wages. Then the other thing, I mean, if you're objective, you can't but think, well, the reason so many workers are not coming back is that they are women. They are mothers. They have young children. Their children are not in school. Child care centers have been closed. And so women who were disproportionately laid off during the COVID-19 pandemic actually can't come back. And then you have Biden's economic program for child care, which if passed would be far reaching and important. Biden presents it as a need for moms and families and children. But when you listen carefully to his words, it's also about the needs of business to reemploy low wage workers. Right, Brian. So I think you're referring to all these articles or opinion pieces by you know, right wing economists and pundits who are railing against American workers right now and who these pundits say aren't going back to work because we are all living good off of that extra $300 in pandemic unemployment assistance provided in the most recent COVID relief bill passed by Congress. But as you mentioned, you know, I agree. I think there are at least three glaring faults and omissions in all of these diatribes against American workers, which I think shows that these pundits really don't have a clue about the lives of working people. And these omissions are, as you mentioned, first of all, the virtual non-existence of affordable child care, which, by the way, does exist in socialist countries or in countries pressured by socialists to meet this basic human need if you want women to work. Second, the almost never mentioned fact that we are still in a pandemic and OSHA, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is still getting up to speed to specify what are COVID safe working environments. And it's not even clear how these rules, once completed, will be enforced. In other words, go back to what? And this fact ties back into childcare because parents of school aged children relied on in person learning for their children so that they can go to work. You know, but school districts all over the country with overcrowded classrooms, often older buildings without up to date ventilation, you know, had really trouble meeting COVID safety standards. And teachers here in DC and around the country had to basically hold the line and not be pressured to return to classrooms without it being safe. So only 54% of public schools were offering in person learning in March. And that's according to the Biden administration's own figures. And finally, I would say these pundits have no answer for the question of why should a person go back to a job that is going to pay them less than unemployment? You know, why do we have jobs that don't pay a living wage? Why are some business models, like probably many restaurants, created to be profitable by paying poverty wages? So on Monday, Biden seemed to mimic some of the right wing talking points But I think he actually tried to skate down the middle, you know, telling workers receiving unemployment that they have to take a fair job offer if they are offered one and go off of unemployment, you know, trying to kind of give a nod to these right wing talking points. But he also is saying that it has to be a fair job offer and it has to be a job that has safe working environments, right? But on the other hand, he's acknowledging that the U.S. still has 8 million fewer jobs than when the pandemic started and that many job sites may not meet the safety standards and that finally many parents with children at home can't work. So here he is on Monday addressing the issue of child care. We're going to provide real help for people struggling with the challenge of child care, which is making it hard for many parents who need to work, especially women, to get back to work. During this crisis, thousands of child care providers and centers were forced to close because they couldn't make ends meet with fewer students and higher costs to keep them safe. As a result, parents lost lost the support system they depended on for child care, and tens of thousands of child care workers lost their jobs. In fact, there are 150,000 fewer child care jobs now than there were pre-pandemic. The American Rescue Plan has already allocated 
funds to states to address the immediate challenge to our economy and of too few child care operations. Later during those same comments, you know, he talked about the impact that his American Families Plan would have in terms of, you know, distributing these funds to states so that child care organizations, companies, services could reopen and families could also receive direct benefits to help them pay for child care. So I just think that these facts on the ground are lost on so many pundits. I was looking at the piece written by Kathleen Parker, the right-wing opinion writer for the Washington Post. And she said in a piece published Friday that the United States isn't suffering a job shortage so much as it is suffering a shortage of people willing to work. She says, quote, economic incentive is what drives human beings. What began as a helping hand now looks like an incentive to take a nap, uh, end quote. And she even says, quote, Americans are being schooled in what socialism looks like, how it operates and how easily some people can be lulled into complacency. The gentle caress of the benevolent hand of big government slowly becomes the grip of dependence, end quote. You know, so this is the type of rhetoric, you know, she's using. But even someone like Parker saying that the pandemic benefits amount to socialism, she can't hide from the fact that they are trying to force people back into starvation wages. And she uses Montana as an example, one of two states where Republican governors have said they will eliminate the COVID relief unemployment. She says that in Montana, where combined state and federal unemployment benefits come out to around $600 weekly, and the minimum wage is $8.65 an hour. Well, you do the math, she says. Well, when we actually do the math, the worker earning $8.65 an hour grosses just more than $300 before taxes for the entire week, you know, if paid for 35 hours, and earns just between $15,000 and $16,000 for the entire year. So people like Parker, many commentators in print, online, and on television that are talking right now have a problem with people not working, but have no problem with people working for a poverty or slave wage. And they don't know that less than $300 after taxes might barely cover your child care. I think we should do a social experiment and have Kathleen Parker work for one year at a McDonald's. (laughs) Uh, 40 hours a week uh, in Montana for whatever, $8 an hour, and then give her a choice. Does she want to take the current economic benefits provided by the American Rescue Plan or continue for this next year at McDonald's? I think Kathleen Parker, I'd love to hear- I know what she would choose. (laughs) I'd love to hear her opinion after one year in that experiment. Well, speaking of McDonald's, you know that they are going to go on strike on May 19th to continue their push for $15 an hour. And McDonald's workers have been a big part of the Fight for 15 movement. And they're saying to McDonald's, which is having their big shareholder meeting, you know, and McDonald's recently announced that it earned $5 billion in profits in profits in 2020 and paid shareholders nearly $4 billion in dividends. So McDonald's workers are saying that, hey, you know, we earned that money and we deserve a fair wage and we deserve fair treatment on the job, good hours. And the fast food market, which has really benefited under the pandemic, these workers are fighting back and they say this is their time to fight back. Esther, I thought what you highlighted, those three reasons are really, really compelling. You know, Parker says it's an issue of dependency, which is just disgusting. But it's obviously a story about childcare, about healthcare, about, you know, about making sure that people are actually getting the things that they need. Unintentionally, this wealthy restaurateur, Robert Mahone, who owns a couple of restaurants in New York City, was quoted in a mainstream media piece. I think he unintentionally used this metaphor. He says, if I was working a back-breaking job and making $600 a week, and I had the option of making $600 and not breaking my back, well, the choice is obvious. I don't know if he chose that metaphor intentionally, because, I mean, so many restaurant jobs, like, you know, if you're a bartender or a bar back and you're lugging kegs of beer to and from the bar, that is literally a backbreaking job. And those are jobs that don't have health care. And you're only making $600 a week and you can't afford to actually have health care. And moreover, you're working these crazy hours without any sort of protections for your back and, you know, other important protections in the workplace. Like, 
yeah, he's right. Of course the choice is obvious. I'd prefer to not break my back. There's another choice, low-wage workers in the hospitality or restaurant business, bartending, waiting tables chose this year. And it's not really about whether to stay at home and receive government benefits or go back to backbreaking labor at terrible wages. A lot of people became warehouse workers. You know, Amazon hired 500,000 more people during the pandemic. And it really says so much when, you know, if you're a picker, the people who go through the Amazon warehouse and pick items, we go to our computer, we press a button, we click, we say we want a tube of toothpaste and comes from Amazon and it's going to be delivered to our home in the next day or two. Well, there's people running around warehouses hundreds of thousands of them picking the tube of toothpaste and they pick about 1200 units a day of take time of about seven seconds per unit. And the barcode scanner that they use that directs them around the warehouse, it has them moving constantly. That's how Amazon works. Amazon hired 500,000 more people. And a lot of people who are in the other low paid jobs preferred to go and work for Amazon because as bad as it is, it's better than what they had. And the median income, the median wage for Amazon pickers is $14.68 an hour. It's really something when Amazon can quickly you know, fill all of those positions because people would prefer that to something else. That's a sign of how the United States working class is really being regimented such that even though Kathleen Parker says people don't have incentive. They have lots of incentive. The main incentive is you don't want to starve. And the capitalists and these big corporations, these billionaires, are organizing production such that they make ever greater profits, as the billionaires did during 2020, by paying workers these terrible, awful wages in U.S. industries, U.S. stores, U.S. warehouses. Yeah, that's right, Brian. I mean, it truly is stunning how much richer some of the richest men in the world got over the course of this period of extreme suffering for so many millions and millions of working people. Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, March 2020, the lockdowns begin. He has $54.7 billion. November 2020, still the height of the pandemic, tens of thousands of people dying every month. He's made an additional almost $50 billion more. In November 2020, Mark Zuckerberg has $101.7 billion. If you look at the same time period, March 2020 to November 2020, for Jeff Bezos, he goes from $113 billion to $182.4 billion. And Elon Musk, in terms of you know the percentage of wealth that he gained, that was by far the most. He's about five times richer now than he was at the beginning of the pandemic. He went from having $24.6 billion to having $126.2 billion in November of 2020. This has been a fantastic time, maybe the best time of their lives if you own one of these gigantic corporations, have billions of dollars in the stock market, or are one of the richest men in the world. But for everybody else, as we've been talking about, it's a period of immense suffering. Elon Musk is such a creative person. That's why he's so rich. I mean, that, Esther, and the fact that his father owned an emerald mine in Zambia, those two things put together really, you know, gave him a great start. You know, uh, actually, when I was listening to Walter and I was hearing him talking about how it's been such the best of time for these like mega rich people, I was kind of thinking back to what Biden was saying about this being a one-time investment for childcare, for meeting the needs of these families. And I think that this is an important site of struggle for socialists, for people fighting for a better world in this country, because it shouldn't be a one-time investment. We need to fight for these benefits to be permanent. And we need to understand that this one-time investment may not be enough. It will not be enough because it's not as if the pandemic is just disappearing. And it's not as if these rich countries all over the world are handling the pandemic and sharing the technology so that we're not insured against another wave in the fall, in the winter. And we have to make sure that families are continued to be supported and that this isn't just a one-off. And then what's going to happen when these benefits run out? Yeah. Capitalism is a form of organized crime. It's gross. 
where the billionaires can make billions, tens of billions more in the middle of a pandemic. Moms are laid off. Their kids are struggling. There's no help for them. And then Biden, who's considered like, you know, the knight on the horse, crusading for justice for the little guy, for women, a one-time investment to make sure that women can go back to work in low-wage jobs, which are currently suffering from a labor shortage. Again, you're right, Esther. Our attitude as socialists should be not simply, as we are not simply, critiquing what's wrong with Biden and the cynicism of it, but taking advantage of this moment, just as the McDonald workers are taking advantage of the moment, to fight, to organize, to mobilize. That's the key for social change. It's always been the key for social change. And the other key to social change is having organizations. Movements go up and down. Having an organization that has durability, that has stability, that retains the memory of all struggles, the victories as well as the defeats, so that they are lessons learned for the next generation. This is the key to social change. And I'm saying this, Walter, because Liberation News, the website that you edit, is a website that provides organizational stability and overview and critique and analysis, not as a matter of something academic or something interesting. It's really a guide to action for those involved in the struggle for social change and for social justice. What are the latest stories? We'll close this out with what are the latest stories in Liberation News newsletter? Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of the struggle for social change, I definitely want to encourage everybody to check out this article titled District Attorney Drops All Remaining Adams County Charges Against Denver Anti-Racist Protest Leaders. So this is about the leaders in the struggle for justice for Elijah McLean in Colorado, who were hit with a huge number of bogus felony and misdemeanor charges as retaliation as a form of repression against their movement for justice against racist police terror. There was another important victory won by the movement that sprung up all across the country to demand that the charges be dropped against them. Many, many of the charges have now been dropped. So there are two jurisdictions that at the same time charged the protest leaders. Adams County is one of them, and all charges from Adams County have now been dropped. So this is a major, major victory, but it's important to remember that the fight is not yet over. There are still quite a number of misdemeanor charges that could still result in jail time, prison time, that the activists in Denver are facing, and so it's very important to remain closely tuned into this movement, but a major step forward, all Adams County charges have been dropped. Another few articles you could check out, I highly recommend one titled, Why Did the Biden Administration Reverse Course on COVID Vaccine Patent Waivers? The article examines this decision, this reversal by Biden, and what kind of factors played into that decision, including important international pressures. And then finally, there is an article titled, Rebellion Sweeps Columbia Despite Deadly Repression. There is a heroic, courageous uprising taking place day after day in Colombia against the far-right government of Ivan Duque. This is a struggle for the rights of the working class. It was sparked by the introduction of an anti-worker regressive tax bill that spiraled into a general uprising against the direction of the country and the extreme violent repression that the far right uses to stay in power. Check out all that and more on liberationnews.org. You can sign up for the newsletter. The button is at the very top of the webpage. When you go to liberationnews.org, it'll say sign up for Liberation's newsletter. Fill that out and you'll receive our updates every week with these and many, many other important stories. Thank you, Walter. Real call out to Lillian House, Joel Northam, Eliza Lucero, Terrence Roberts. These individuals were facing a half a century, at least Joel and Lillian facing half a century in prison for leading entirely peaceful protests. And now the case of Elijah McLean, that was the issue. Elijah McLean, 23-year-old unarmed black man, brutally cruelly, brutally murdered by the cops. He was walking home from a grocery store. They accosted him. They killed him. And the cops are still not arrested. And these people organized peaceful protests, 
demanding justice, demanding that these killer cops be fired and prosecuted. And they, in turn, were the victims, spent eight days in solitary confinement in COVID-ridden jails when they were arrested on September 17th. In the case of Joel, Lillian, and Eliza, they are members of an organization, Party for Socialism and Liberation. That organization and other organizations in the movement jumped to their defense, organized a national and international, not to mention a local support effort. It's a real sign of how people can fight back and win against repression. And repression is part of the struggle for social justice. I want to encourage everyone, go to their website, denverdefense.org, denverdefense.org. There's a documentary movie at the top, which was made by Breakthrough News, our friends at Breakthrough, an 18-minute long documentary movie. It shows what this struggle is all about. Continue to show your support for them. They still face years in jail from these misdemeanor charges, so this battle is not over. But you can see how victory can be obtained. When you're attacked by the cops and you're an individual, it's you against the entire apparatus of the state. When they stack charges against you and you're facing 12 or 14 felonies and half a century in prison, they do that in order to get people to plead guilty to a lesser charge and go to jail for a year or two, even if you're entirely innocent. That's why there are so many innocent people in prison. That's why there's 95% or 97 or 98% conviction rate in American jails. That's why 80% of America's prisoners, the 2.3 million prisoners in America, never even went to trial. They copped a plea because the state comes at you as an individual. And what this case shows as a microcosm is that we need movements, we need organizations, we need community, we need to be able to stay together to successfully resist the state. Anyway, stay with us for the rest of the week with the Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf, where we talk about the biggest stories in the economy. And on Thursday, again, in The Real Story, we take a deep dive on the biggest issues confronting our society and the world and the movement for justice. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.